Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. Imagine scouring the globe for the remains of one of the rarest of artifacts, a 17th century sunken pirate ship known as the Golden Fleece. In his latest book, writer Robert Curson chronicles the journey of two treasure hunters in search of Joseph Bannister's infamous pirate ship. I recently talked with Curson about the book, Pirate Hunters, Treasure, Obsession, and the Search for a Legendary Pirate Ship. Well, this is one of the most thrilling parts of the story. Bannister was one of the most notorious pirates of them all. He was the most wanted man in the Caribbean uh, for a stretch in the late 1680s, but his name had been lost to time. Um, but what makes him so interesting to me is that he began his career not as a pirate at all, but as its exact opposite. He was a well-respected English sea captain who was entrusted by wealthy ship owners to carry valuable cargoes between London and Port Royal, Jamaica in the 1680s. And at the time, Port Royal was known as the wickedest city on earth. It was a, a town full of pirates and tavern owners and brothel keepers. But Bannister kept it on the straight and narrow for many years. He was entrusted and very well respected and headed for a soft landing in life. All he needed to do was uh, work a few more years, and he would have a soft, easy retirement uh, in a home by the sea. But one day in 1684, for reasons no one could fathom, Bannister stole his own ship, the Golden Fleece, recruited a top-flight crew of bandits, and went on a pirating rampage quite unlike any history had seen. Throughout the book, you, you, you talk about how uh, a lot about historically, or maybe not, maybe not historically, traditionally what we think of as pirates and, and what they do and how they act from, uh, you know, from either reading or from how movies kind of romanticize the pirate lifestyle. That's not really quite the story. It's, it's a little maybe stranger than, than fiction in terms of what a pirate's life is like, especially how Bannister became, <laughs> became a notorious pirate. Yes, and this is one of those rare cases where uh, reality is even more thrilling than the Hollywood version of things. Um, you know, there are traditional things that Hollywood just gets wrong. Like, for example, pirates never buried their treasure or drew treasure maps with an X marking the spot. They were wanted men who often measured their life expectancy in days, not years. So they spent the money that they stole as fast as they could steal it, and they certainly didn't draw any maps to it. Um, but the most exciting thing about real pirates was that they were part of the first democracy in America. Pirate ships were the first democracies 100 years before that concept came to our shores. And it was the most thrilling of all lives. Here you could have a young man with very uh, dim prospects for his life and his work able to join a crew in which everything was voted on. And the lowliest deckhand's vote counted for just as much as the pirate captains vote himself, and they voted on everything, where to go, what to steal, who to kick off the ship, who to take on, um, and everything was put to a vote. They had constitutions aboard pirate ships. So you could be a man in the 1680s and decide either to work a terrible life as a member of the merchant marine or join the Navy, which might have even been worse, a dip more difficult life, or you could roll the dice, join a pirate ship in which your vote counted every bit as much as the captain's, and you could become rich overnight and go on adventures on the high seas. So that's the part that really thrilled these guys, and I think the part that spoke to Captain Bannister himself, to be part of this new, unimaginable idea called democracy.
if I remember correctly, the Golden Fleece, I believe, was found in, was it 2009 they finally found some of the uh, some of the wreckage or some of the artifacts and remains of it. D- tell us a little bit about these two adventurers that uh, that that you write about that that, that in this extraordinary journey of theirs to 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 fi- actually find the Golden Fleece and and uh, I guess validate what what uh, history may have forgotten. Right. The two men I write about are named John Chatterton and John Matera, and for most of their lives they worked in ordinary uh, jobs on the American East Coast, but they were uh, inflamed by a passion for shipwreck diving and shipwreck hunting. And uh, in around 2007 or 2008, they got a tip on where they might find the rarest thing a person could search for in all the world, and that was a pirate ship. When that call came in, only one pirate ship had ever been discovered and identified. And uh, there was a reason for that. Pirate ships were built to be invisible. They were stealth operations. So when they disappeared, no one went looking for them or wouldn't even have any idea who was on them. So the prospect of looking and finding their own pirate ship was irresistible to these two guys, John Chatterton and John Matera. They pledged everything they had, all their money, all their time, especially their hearts, uh, to the idea that they could find another one. And not just any ordinary pirate ship, but that uh, belonging to Captain Bannister, the Golden Fleece. And uh, the Golden Fleece was very special. Not only had it been commanded by this incredible unusual commander, but he had defeated the Royal Navy, and not just one Navy battleship, but two, in a, in a battle in 1686. So this was, uh, to Chatterton Matera, the uh, most singular opportunity a shipwreck hunter could ever hope to have. Little did they know, however, when they set out, just how difficult the search would be. And that's really what the book uh, describes. Um, Almost impossible search and an even more impossible discovery. And I was say it, it's it's kind of in many ways a, a rather sordid tale in, in all of the uh, all of the the things that they went through in order to to piece this together. History played uh, a large role in in this, and then also just you know, understanding who Joseph Bannister was himself in, in trying to track this down. That's right. It appeared from the start that this may be an easy enough search because. Historical documents pointed to a very specific place on the north coast of the Dominican Republic where the ship sank and where it should be found. And Chatterton and Matera seemed to have come along at just the right time. They had mastered the cutting-edge 21st century technology that would allow them to search in a way that no one else had been able to do it. So it seemed, on a surface, like a relatively simple task. But as is uh, the case more often than you'd think, the historical documents were incorrect. And when they discovered that the pirate ship was not sunk where all of history believed it to be, uh, they had to figure out a new way to look and a new place to look. Now, that's virtually impossible. Oceans get very, very big when you don't have specific information. But in an epiphany that really excited me, it's the thing that really grabbed me about this story, Chatterton and Matera decided that the only way they could find this lost pirate ship was to stop looking for the ship itself. And I know that sounds strange, But the epiphany they had was that only by looking for the man himself, Joseph Bannister, the pirate captain, could they ever hope to find his ship. Only by learning who he was, what what motivated him, and how he saw the world, could they then see the world like that themselves and hope to be drawn to the site of the battle he waged against the English Royal Navy. Did you... Outline in the book. That's that's what eventually did lead them to the to them. I, I would assume that imagine that 
obviously the the crown probably was was very interested in in tracking him down and and bringing him to to justice so to speak is that eventually how they were able to kind of triangulate and zero in on where he might have been yes absolutely it, it fell to the royal navy um and you're exactly right about that the governor of jamaica and the powers that be in england could not accept the idea of a proper english gentleman turning pirate and embarrassing the country like bannister did so they sent the full force of the Royal Navy after him. There were eyewitnesses to the battle. Bannister really should have just thrown his hands up and given up. Instead, he engaged the Royal Navy and defeated them in battle. Un- unimaginable. But it did leave traces, and the eyewitnesses to the battle recorded things in, in a way that seemed very conclusive. Um, but it's so fascinating to see how uh, one person's version of where something happened or even how it happened might be different from reality. And that's what real shipwreck hunters and treasure hunters have to figure out. That's the art of the game in their world. Now, they, they, dis- they did discover the wreckage, they were able to, to, to document it. The things that they were able to find, did you get any insight into what the composition of the wreckage s- said or reflected about, about Bannister and about his, his merry band of, of pirates? Well, the one thing that was certain was that Bannister was a genius and that um, there were very few men in the world capable of putting his ship in the position he did and waging that kind of war against um, such superior forces. The ship itself, due almost to a miracle of nature, is almost entirely perfectly preserved. So there was fresh water, streams running over it, and it was buried in a kind of silt and mud where once the guys discovered it after this long odyssey they went on, um, the ship was uh, looked like just like a ship would. That some of the artifacts were preserved so perfectly. For example, they found a cereal bowl with a porridge still in it. You know, a guy's meal as he was eating it when the Royal Navy ships closed in and the battle unfolded. They found vials of medicine with the medicine still inside. Thousands of pirate beads, just as colorful, bright orange and black and yellow as the day they went down. Um, These were immense and such rare finds. As I said, this is only the second pirate ship ever found and positively identified. So to see any of it is a thrill beyond any that a shipwreck hunter could ever hope to find. Robert, will will at some point, as I understand, maybe bring us kind of up to date on where things stand with this. As I understand, the treasure that they found and, the, and everything they found is still kind of tied up. Yeah, that's that uh, happens more often than you'd think. They brought up beautiful artifacts and coins and all kinds of things, um, but uh, they have a they have yet to divide it. And part of, and, and the way treasure hunting works is half of it usually goes to the country in which the treasure hunters work. But there are often also disputes um, with other people who are involved in the search. And so things often in treasure hunting have to be disentangled. And that's the process they're in as we speak. As I was reading about the account, and, and, and you talk about some of, the, uh, of their associations and, and the other people that they worked with and how they, how they tracked, tracked this down, uh, it, it, it was kind of interesting. I, is, there, is there honor among treasure hunters? <laughs> Well, that's, you know, there's a, an old saying about treasure hunters, that treasure is trouble, and that once you get near treasure, it tells you who you really are. And so disputes break out often. And I'll tell you, uh, even for myself, when I went to the Dominican Republic, I was shown 
heaps and heaps of treasure from lost Spanish galleons and other ships. And there is a different um, experience that overcomes you when you touch real and old treasure, old gold and old silver. It goes right into your soul, into your DNA, and it speaks to you. It sings a song from centuries past, and you understand why people would risk their lives for this. It, uh, it feels different. It's heavier. It rings when it falls to the table as you let it slip through your fingers. So treasure um, can indeed be trouble and often is with treasure hunters. Uh, if you're greedy, if you're no good, if you're dishonest, treasure will bring that out. And if you're a good person, treasure will tell you that too. You mentioned in the kind of toward the end of the book you, that um, Chatterton and Matera were on to their kind of their next adventure uh, with the uh, San Miguel. What, do, do we know what happened with 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 that ship? Yeah, that search is still underway. Um, you know, originally Chatterton and Matera set out to find a treasure ship, not a pirate ship. And at the last minute, on the eve of their search for treasure, they were um, informed about this lost pirate ship. So now they are back to their original plan which is to uh, salvage a genuine Spanish galleon from the uh, 16th century. So that's still ongoing, and fingers crossed they find that, and that would be a, a historic find like none other. It's been fascinating to, to talk with you about, about this whole experience. What do you hope that, uh, that, that listeners that pick up, the, that pick up Pirate Hunters and, and read the book, what do you hope that they, they take away from, from the experience that you chronicle? Well, you know, I always hope that they had a feeling like I had when I talk to John Chatterton and John Matera about this, that there's a little bit of pirate in all of us. And the idea that you can, uh, even in this day and age of desk jobs and um, rules and proper conduct, that there's always a chance that you can go on your own adventure and that it's waiting for you if only you have the courage to jump off the pier and go look. That's author Robert Kirsten. His latest book, Pirate Hunters, is now out in paperback from Random House. In the author's voice is a listener-supported web feature of WSIU Radio and Southern Illinois University. I'm Jeff Williams.